You're listening to Spectrum Stories, the podcast from Spectrum, the leading source for news and expert opinion on autism research. I'm Jacob Brogan. In our previous episode, we discussed new research on regression, the phenomenon by which a child loses social, communication, or other skills she had previously gained. As we learned, where researchers once thought regression in autism was relatively rare, they now believe it's much more common and may even be the norm. That changing consensus comes in part out of prospective studies in which researchers follow a child from early infancy until her diagnosis. In autism research, the most common way to conduct a prospective study is to work with the younger brothers and sisters of children with autism. As we've known for years, these baby sibs, as they are often called, are at high risk of autism themselves. In watching their development, there's an opportunity to learn more about the early signs of autism and to potentially find ways to diagnose and treat it earlier. For this episode, we spoke to a few of the researchers who've conducted baby sib studies during the past 15 plus years. These projects demand years of longitudinal effort, which means the researchers track children over time. We'll hear a little about what they hoped to achieve when they began their work, what lessons they've drawn from it, and how they're hoping to proceed as they move ahead. But that clinical work only tells half the story, because these studies also ask a lot of the families who participate in them. To better understand what the families go through, we also talk to some parents who've brought their children in for baby sib studies. They'll tell us about why they wanted to participate and what that experience was like. One of those parents is Nam Nguyen. As Nguyen explains, she got involved shortly after her oldest child, Perry, received an autism diagnosis. I had a friend who was working at the Mind Institute. She was a transcriber, actually. And she's a family friend, and for a long time, she had concerns about our oldest, but as you know, a lot of times friends and family feel really awkward saying anything. But when my youngest was born, and really it was when he was born, and we're like, oh my God, is that what the doctors mean by like eye contact and like babbling and stuff? Um, When my youngest was born, we got our oldest assessed and you know they gave him the ASD diagnosis and just about that time my youngest was around like four months old and so the family friend said hey you know the Mind Institute has a sibling study and they're looking for siblings um, and they'll follow them from six months on so you're right in the window do you want to do that and So I said, yes, of course, that would be great Um, because I I know the chances were higher, but it's not like we had any inkling when we had our second. Part of the appeal of participating in these studies, she says, is that she knew she'd have a set of highly trained eyes on her younger son. While she may not have been worried about him, she still thought that caution was warranted. But there's another reason that Wynne and parents like her take part in this kind of research. As Lisa Jeffers, another parent who signed her children up for the study, tells it, part of the appeal is that you might be able to help other families down the line. She became involved with the Institute after her first child, Jade, was diagnosed. I knew they had a early study for Jade, and I signed up for that as soon as I could. And then they told me about the infant sibling study, and I thought, you know, I better 
be a part of it because I wasn't sure if the next kid was going to be autistic or not. So I wanted to help other families too because, you know, regardless of whether or not it was going to be typical, they could take that information and use it to help other families. Here, the question isn't just how their participation could help, but whether it would. That's a concern that Lonnie Zweigenbaum, who helped kick off babysitter research, had to grapple with when he first started advocating for these studies. I recall when we were first starting out, um, there was a lot of skepticism about whether these types of studies were even feasible, you know, whether families would commit to the kind of uh, time commitment of longitudinal assessment, um, whether the recurrence rate was high enough that the, that these types of projects could be feasible. I mean, at the time, the estimated recurrence was somewhere between 5 and 8%. And the reviewers often commented that they just did not feel that there would be enough children with autism identified through this kind of high-risk design that we would learn anything about autism. When Zweigenbaum talks about the recurrence rate here, he means the probability that a sibling of a child with autism will also receive an autism diagnosis. While 5 to 8% was much higher than the rate of autism in the general population, it was still low enough to raise concerns. Would researchers see enough baby siblings with autism for their findings to be meaningful? As Weigenbaum tells it, one measure of the value of baby sib studies has been a serious revision to that recurrence rate figure. Years of pooled research indicate that the recurrence rate may actually be closer to 20%. Both Jeffers and Wynne experienced the possibility of familial recurrence firsthand. As Ingfei Chen reports in a new article for Spectrum on baby sib studies, Jeffers's second and third children were both diagnosed with autism while they were participating in the Mind Institute's studies. Much the same was true for Nguyen, whose younger son, Graham, was diagnosed around the time of his 24-month visit. By that point, however, Nguyen's family had already been visiting the Institute at regular intervals for years. Each time, her son would participate in an ADOS, or Autism Diagnostic Observation Schedule exam. That exam involves a set of carefully monitored activities designed to spot possible symptoms of autism. Here's how Nguyen describes the process. So they followed Graham at 6, 12, like every six months. So 6, 12, 18, 24, we would actually go into the Mind Institute for like a good three-hour chunk where they would run an ADOS on him and talk to him and then talk to me. And in between visits, they were also doing a a video component because they were seeing if people could, from what I remember, they were seeing if it was possible to um, have parents see changes or differences between typical and other developing kids online so that they wouldn't have to go in and do an ADOS. So we did that in between our visits as well. Researchers are acutely aware of the burdens that regular, consistent participation in these studies can place on families. As Helen Tager-Flussberg, director of Boston University's Center for Autism Research Excellence, told me, that's critical to the ways they approach their work on baby sib research. You're dealing with real babies. And more importantly, you're dealing with real families. And when we think about our high-risk families, 
we are working with families who already have a child diagnosed with autism. So these are complicated families that have a great deal of um, uh, stress uh, going on in their lives. And it's enormously um, time-consuming. It's very important. Of course, we're exclusively research studies, but we have to wear our clinical, uh, clinical with a small c, hat um, every time we are in communication with these families. And we have to appreciate deeply what an investment they are making in our research programs. I also spoke with Sally Ozanoff of the University of California Davis Mind Institute, who you may remember from our previous episode. She stressed that it's important to make things easy and clear for families from the very start. We do let them know up front, actually, when we do an enrollment phone call, and then, of course, in the consent form about the longitudinal nature of the study. We also tell them that they're able to end their participation in the study at any time. And if they ask us to drop them from the study, we do, no questions asked. So we do try to put them in the driver's seat in terms of their participation so that they'll feel comfortable signing up and not feeling that now they're stuck and they could never change. Ozanoff says that few families have dropped out, even when the studies continue for years. That may be because researchers strive to make every visit as easy as they can. We try to be as flexible as possible with our scheduling, so we will see families around the baby's nap time or the drop-off and pick-up schedules for the older child. Um, We do weekend appointments. We sometimes go to the home and do a home visit if necessary. The stories that Jeffers and Wynne told me reflect that commitment to care. I asked Wynne if the process had been difficult. Here's what she said. No. They made the process as easy as possible. I mean, the, the drive is long. We're about an hour away. But, you know, as I said, they have child care. They took breaks. And they were really sweet and understanding people. She told me that when things did get challenging, it wasn't because the actual examinations were hard. It was because of what they revealed. I think the most difficult thing about the process is you know, when, because as Graham was, he was um, no concerns at six, no concerns at 12, some concerns at 18, a lot of concerns at 24, and then I think diagnosed at like 26, 27 months. So at that point, you know, the last diagnostic, it wasn't part of the study. It was just because there were there was enough concerns that they did an, an additional ADOS so that they could diagnose them. And that was a part that was a part of, you know, when we signed up for the study. They said like, you know, if anything does show up, we will give you resources and things like that. So that was also an incentive to sign up. Mainly it was peace of mind. We're like, oh, great, we'd love extra eyes on our kid, but he's fantastic and we're not worried about him. Uh, So the hardest part is when you do start worrying about him and you do have extra eyes. and So it's a hard and good part that they see what you see. Baby Sib researchers live with the knowledge that they may have to deliver difficult news. But 
As Ozanov told me, she and her colleagues are committed to being as transparent as possible throughout the duration of their relationship with a family. We do write reports after every visit detailing their child's strengths and weaknesses, and we also tell parents on the phone before they ever come in that it's this is sort of a contract with them that we have that we're going to provide them with feedback at every single visit, even if we're not sure we'll open a conversation. If we have some concerns, we will tell them. That transparency is important in part because earlier diagnosis can make an enormous difference in the treatment, care, and progress of a child with autism. Tager Flussberg told me that this is one of the most important consequences of baby sib studies, one that may grow even more meaningful as we gather additional information about early indicators of autism. I think from the behavioral studies, we need to step back, take a look at what we do see as being early risk signs in even the latter part of the first year of life, and think about designing interventions that specifically target some of the characteristics that we see during that period, which we have not yet done, I think. So I think that's a real possibility um, coming down the line. Those demands might intensify if baby sib researchers can identify what Ozanov calls the holy grail of their work, definitive biomarkers of autism. Though they haven't found any yet, Zweigenbaum listed a host of candidate possibilities when I spoke with him, many of them coming out of electroencephalogram, magnetic resonance imaging, and eye-tracking investigations. From my read, there are actually a number of studies that have looked at the possibility of making predictions of risk at an individual level based on sort of, you know, this uh, objectively measured, um, you know, kind of non-behavioral task, you know, whether it's looking at the direction of eye gaze or evoke responses or, or brain structure or function. Participating in the studies that would help provide such evidence often requires even more substantial involvement from families. Jeffers, for example, recalls the challenge of preparing her children to participate in MRI scans. They give a a CD of the sound the MRI made. So we put it to our iPod and then hooked up our headphones. And when they went to bed at night here at the house, for at least a week in advance, we'd keep them up like pretty much all day and then put them to bed and hope that they would get used to the sounds playing in their ears because the MRI machine is pretty loud. Of course, it's nothing like the real thing, but it's, it can be close. While some such studies have yielded promising results, we still don't have any definitive answers. But Tager Flussberg, for one, says that we shouldn't be frustrated. It is, she says, only reasonable given the slow pace that this research needs to take. I think we're all very much in the midst of this research. This is an extremely young field. Uh, We've been around for 10, 12 years now. And to think we would have exhausted everything there is to know in such a short time frame when we're talking about such rich and complex developmental data is, I think, asking far more of our extremely complicated work than would ever be done in any other area of science. More immediately, though, participation in the study was helpful for Wynne's family, in part because it made it easier to get help for her sons quickly. And that, she says, made all the difference. From my personal experience, they are not kidding. Like, when you you hear the early intervention is best, 
they are not kidding at all. And because my oldest was diagnosed when he was three and a half and Graham was diagnosed when he was two and just that one year difference is huge. Like I look at where Graham is and I know they have different presentations, but where Graham is at three and a half, where he is now, he's the age where Perry was diagnosed and he has so much more skills and abilities than Perry did at that age. Um, So it is not a joke that early intervention makes a big difference. It's also important, of course, to remember that not every parent who enrolls a child in a baby sib study comes away from the experience with an autism diagnosis. In fact, not every child in these studies falls into the high-risk group to begin with. As Ozanoff told me, the presence of children who never receive an autism diagnosis and of those who are unlikely to receive one in the first place is essential because it helps us better understand what typical development looks like, giving researchers a valuable point of comparison. It's critical. There really are very few of these studies that don't have a low-risk comparison group um, because it's it's really necessary, since some of this is uncharted territory, to know like what a typical six-month-old would do or how much does a typical nine-month look at faces or look at eyes in an eye tracking task or um, to understand what the brain development in a certain region of the brain looks like in a typical 12-month-old. If we don't know that because it's not like there's norms for these things or atlases all set up with those things we could just look up, we have to have those low-risk participants um, and their information to make sense you know, to interpret the data from the high-risk individuals. So it's absolutely critical. All of the families who participate are, as Ozanov puts it, heroic. Yeah, they're really heroic. They all are, actually, because even the families of the high-risk children who might have a little bit more benefit they get from coming to the visits also has just terribly stressful lives. And often we're giving them the worst news, you know, like now another child has autism. And yet I'm not sure if the parents I spoke to would call themselves heroic. But I do know that Wynne didn't hesitate when I asked her if she'd recommend that other parents participate in baby sib studies. Jeffers, likewise, is proud that she and her family have been able to play a part in the ongoing study of autism, even as she advocates patience. It does feel good. Um, I know there's a lot more to go, a lot more research to be done. So it is rewarding and it does feel good, but I also know that autism is a very complex neurological disorder, so it's going to take a little while. This was an episode of Spectrum Stories, the podcast for Spectrum, the leading source for news and expert opinion on autism research. To learn more about the state of baby sib research, read Ingfei Chen's article, Understanding Autism, Baby Steps, available at spectrumnews.org. Audio for this episode was edited by Mickey Capper. I'm Jacob Brogan.